I mean, often the uh, the games that work on mobile don't work on PC and console, of course. You know, different play patterns, different inputs. I, when I've tried to do that in the past, I failed trying to make a move a PlayStation game over to iPhone back in the day. Hi friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. I'm joined by Tammy Levy, Chief Games Officer at Captain TV, and David Amor, CEO of Playment. Hello. Hey, hey guys, how are you? Hello, hello. Oh, I forgot to say that this is the one podcast bit. Anyway, you all know it because you're avid listeners, so we won't go, go through it again. There you go, no need. <laughs> um... I bought some really interesting stuff with the Cyber Monday. I was wondering if you both had a a purchase you want to share. Cyber Monday, Black Friday, hasn't it all been proven to be a scam at this point? No. It's a I wonderful mean, I, scam, though. Yeah, I <laughs> well, got... Specifically, the things are, are just sort of put up ahead of Black Friday and then drop down to make it look like a sale. I'm, I proudly let it all pass me by. I'm above these things, you know. No wow. retail strategy is going to get to me, Maria. Why? What did you buy? Well, now you put me on the spot because <laughs> I was hoping other people have purchases. Uh, well, I bought some really cheap hair vitamins. <laughs> Doesn't sound like Cyber Monday. <laughs> it was a well, Cyber Monday deal. Everything is Cyber Monday now. Oh, okay. Yeah. But this is this is not Cyber Monday. But I'm very excited about my my new mug that I got. It's a it's a birthday present because it matches my background. I was wow, going to say, all, yeah. You're all so Mario it's, now. It's it's quite meta. Yeah, for for people listening, I should explain that it's Mario, 8-Bit Mario, which is both your background, your wallpaper, actual wallpaper, and your mug, right? Exactly. So I'm I'm just squeezed in between 8-Bit Mario. Let me uh, ask both of you a question. Were you ever 8-Bit Mario players, or are you both too young for that? Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Too young? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Tammy? I did did play... uh, and we did not have a console at home, but my uh, fun story: my grandma had an original Nintendo. Your grandma's awesome. Yeah. Uh, she was a very big fan of uh, Tetris and Doctor Mario. Wow! Um, Do you know so that I was my my introduction to uh, video game playing was going to grandma's awesome. house and, and playing. Well done, grandma. Yeah. Good, you know, start a career there. She didn't even know it. Yeah, My Mario story, I didn't have the NES at home, but I would go to the arcades and I would be absolute king of the arcades playing Mario to the point where there was a crowd of people behind me that I was pretty proud about. Yeah, I wow. was pretty good. Yeah, I thought you yeah. were too young for Mario. Thank you, good, yes, nice, call back. On that note, uh, actually, we're going to start by talking about Playment, uh, because Playment announced open source tech. So I just want to quickly, I think maybe this is something that studios face. You did an awesome innovation, and then you're at that point of deciding, do we open source it, do we keep it behind closed doors, do we patent? And so I was wondering, well, first, if you could provide some brief context around what is it that you made open source? 
Oh, okay. Yeah, this is, is a quite a technical thing to describe. So a, a, um, a challenge in games overall, normally when you have a client-server model, then you it's server-authoritative, i.e. I, the server decides what is the rules of the game and makes sure that nobody cheats. And uh, that's generally how that stuff works, and often the client is quite dumb in comparison. Uh, when you're building blockchain games, there's an, a challenge, which is the server, particularly if you're running logic on-chain, as we are, then the server is a blockchain, and the blockchain is slow. So if you're asking it to do a lot of computation, then it's going to be expensive and it's going to take a long time to do that. It's not really best suited for that. So the question is, how do we stop people cheating in a game? How do you make sure that, um, how do you move some of that processing not on the blockchain, but instead we figured out a solution of moving that same computation to the client, to the client, to the Mm -hmm. player's machine locally, and then it runs locally. And then the question can be, well, how, how can you avoid that being exploited? And there's a piece of cryptography called uh, zero-knowledge proofs, which is like borderline magic. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really, really smart, which is a way of proving something that you know something without actually showing what it is. So like, uh, oh, it's really hard to describe as an example, but like if you think about it, the, the way that a server would normally figure out whether you've done valid moves was to figure out, oh, let's, let's run those, that replay ourselves and see whether or not those are valid moves. But now you're, you're running it again. It doesn't really solve the problem. So zero knowledge proofs is a way of proving that they're, you've done something valid and you know something to be true without having to actually figure it all out for yourself. And it's a, as I say, really, really smart piece of, uh, Mass zero knowledge proofs and is actually how layer two uh, blockchains work as a slight aside. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so our solution there was to in this MMO that we're building at the moment where there's a lot of difficult computations, like 20 people all fight a dragon. Then we've got to figure out who wins, who loses, what happens to the dragon. Asking a blockchain to do that is tough. It's not going to work. So our solution is to move that onto the client's computer, wrap it up into a zero knowledge proof using snarks. Um, and then that, uh, that gets sent back to, to the blockchain and blockchain, blockchain verifies it. But the verification of that proof is a lot simpler than trying to run all those calculations itself. So that's, um, that's the technology that we developed. First of all, does that make sense? It's hard to describe. So it's, <laughs> it's essentially how do you do an MMO raid without cheating? Yes, fully well, on a blockchain without yeah. gas fees and the processing time required for each move? Yes. How can you do complicated things provably on a blockchain uh, when blockchains are slow for uh, at doing those kind of things? And right. so it's a, but it, you know, it's not unique to blockchain. It's a piece of technology that's yeah. Uh, well, that sounds, that sounds like quite a competitive advantage. Yeah. Why, yeah. Good, why good segue. Open source. Well, I think, um, so as to why we did that, um, I sort of think that's what you should do anyway. I think that, uh, I don't like this idea of people sitting on patents and, uh, secret information. And usually I think if you're really good at what you're doing, then you, um, then by the time you told people what, what it is you've done, then you're busy doing the next thing anyway. And we're sort of, you know, so, so I still think there's a moat and we have expertise of understanding what we've done that you know, can't be open source. But but 
in a general sense, I want to see the Web3 games world grow at a much faster rate than it is right now. And so when there's a sol- when we come across a solution that we think would benefit other people, then if we share it and they're able to use that same idea and as, as a sector of the industry, we're able to grow more quickly, then that's going to benefit all of us. And, and like if the Web3 games continues apace, then that's going to serve our company, even if it isn't us that really push the, the category on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So there's not many studios building fully on chain games, right? No, but you know, in that's true. But just in Web3 games in general, you, you would say like uh, trading approaches, even if it's not open source, like talking about what you're doing, building in the open, discussing how that minting went, the problems that you had, and really sharing that stuff helps whether, whether it's code or not, helps everybody move more quickly. And the other thing is that an important aspect of what we're doing by building on chain is encouraging other people to compose extra functionality into our game. And if we don't show what it is that's going on there, then it's hard for them to build that stuff. So just from a practical point of view, tucking it away away as a bunch of binaries isn't going to help people build more stuff on top of what we're doing. Oh, man, that's, that's so awesome. Thanks for sharing. I was, I was and, very uh, curious. When, I guess one, one quick question there. Were you thinking about uh, eventually making this technology open source when you started developing it, or did you reach a point where you realized that it was that like very valuable to making it open source? I guess it was was it a strategy going in of like let's build it so that it's it's open source and we can build together. Yeah, every everything that we're building certainly on the. Uh, blockchain side is open source, like our, our repos there for everyone to see and users to say fit. I mean, there's a bit of effort in actually making it fully documented and making it as, as something that people can understand. So even though everything's open source, there's other things that we think are specifically useful that will go to the trouble of packaging up, telling the world about and uh, making it a bit more presentable. And that was one of those. Well, um, I think we'll go to the next update. Thanks, David, for sharing all that about no open source. Hopefully, we'll have another session of these in a few months when you discover yet another innovation. <laughs> so I was so excited by this update, which is a path to a trillion transistor chips by 2030. Um, Intel have made a discovery where they believe that they have a way forward to pack even more transistors onto a chip. And so if we're looking at things that require massive computing power, so for example, uh, the ability to train machine learning models uh, with very sophisticated AI, that is the mo- one of the most expensive parts about being able to approach this, te- this technology. The ability for VR headsets to be powerful without having to be plugged into, for example, a a console, um, bringing more innovation into that space of how portable it is, how light it is, it it would be able to to impact that technology. And then also, if we're talking about being able to build realistic experiences that are expensive in the metaverse, that also has massive infrastructure costs and needs of computing power. And so, yeah, being able to have these powerful chips it just gets me very excited. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard this story. This is an interesting one. And what, what, uh, what sort of, uh, what do they think is the resulting computational improvement from this, for this new system? They did not say. And to be honest, I'm not technical enough to, <laughs> to understand it. But they did say uh, but... that 
Moore's law is back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is essentially, you'd go from um, the benchmark is tens of billions of transistors that you have today to a trillion. That's that's a big number. Here, here, let me ask a bad mathematical. What's the difference between ten billion and uh, a trillion? Hang on a second. Ten billion. You're you're the professor. <laughs> there, there's there's a few zeros there, right? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it sounds pretty significant. I'm just trying to do the do the maths on it. Yeah, it would be ten times more dense. Is what they said. Ten, yeah, ten times more dense than they what they are today. And not only that, they're also they also made an announcement that they're breaking barriers into quantum computing because they're trying to innovate. For example, uh, better qubits that are required for quantum computing, being able to better find ways to store the information because it's very sensitive to um, interface defects. For example, if there's a rumbling somewhere with environmental disturbances. So it's just extremely exciting as to what will happen next. I think we have to start branching our brains further than the metaverse, further than VR into what what will be the next big innovation. You, you know, about that Moore's Law point, and uh, there's a futurologist called Ray Kurzweil. I, I saw him keynote once at GDC a long time ago, and whether it's at GDC or some other place anyway, he sort of predicts the future and looks at what's happened in the past to predict the future, and he usually gets things pretty much right. One of the things he pointed out about Moore's Law was that we keep hitting the, it, it, throughout, you know, since the invention of the microchip, we've keep hitting these walls where you go, oh, we can't that's as fast as we can go but then what happens is the demand for for more processing power gets so much that eventually the rewards are so great that the the prize for figuring getting through this barrier mm. becomes like a mega mega prize that that people will just work so hard and find then break through and then maybe three years later or five years later, you hit another one. But I think there's something about the the process of so much demands on um, processing power that the rewards become so great that mm -hmm. humankind finds a solution to get through it. And it, in a way, it's not going up against the smart people at NVIDIA. But to me, it seems like another example of that where just where you thought we'd hit a wall that we couldn't get through, Intel figure out a way through it and will again in the future. I don't know. Tammy, what do you think? I mean, I think it's 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 exciting as um, it, th there's this hunger in the in our industry and just throughout like the, the tech industry to figure out like the next big thing, right? And it's a little bit of what you're saying, right? Like we've been able to like get device small devices that are super powerful in everyone's hands, but you know the next set of innovations have like a big barrier of entry, like the, the VR headsets, like there's just like, even as you're speaking about like, you know, Web3 blockchain, like s computational costs. Um, so I, I do think there's something to be said on, on what you're saying about like, hey, like that now there's, there's like this demand of like, you know, where we're at is just gonna be incremental if we don't see like that next big step in uh, computational power and then, you know, think that will unlock everyone's imagination because at first we'll be, hey, let's do all the things that we haven't been able to do so far, just like build them faster and better. Um, then from there, that that will be very interesting. Like what what's the next frontier? Mm. Yeah. And, and how does quantum play, uh, quantum play out against traditional 
computing. Like that's the, that's sort of something that I would assume would be a breakthrough is when there's more usable quantum computing. It also makes yeah. me a little bit nervous. So, you know, wonder what happens to all my Bitcoin keys, et cetera, that uh, get cracked at that point. But, uh, yeah. you know, I sort of <laughs> a lot of the world relies on cryptography that sounds like it could be broken by uh, quantum computing Definitely. but nonetheless you know do, do they sorry this is a little unkind maria but do, do they run alongside each other traditional processes versus quantum processes uh, to me i'm not an expert from what i try to understand of the space is still not fully proven out exactly how quantum computing can be applied definitely for cryptography for fast calculation well powerful calculation on a scale that we just can't maybe even imagine nowadays because of its limitations in terms of how sensitive it is, because it is working at a quantum level, there isn't that much clarity yet, at least publicly, because considering how much this impacts security and cryptography, I'm sure there's a lot of contracts and not full disclaimers and disclosures of what's, what, what its potential truly is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't have an answer for now. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, if you can have a quantum computer within a VR headset to be shaking around, probably not for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, and so another exciting update this week was about Limit Break's free NFT Super Bowl Mint. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, David. Yeah, for a bit of context, Limit Break, they're a blockchain gaming company. Um, they announced that they're going to be doing a Super Bowl ad for their Gaku game. Um, and they now more recently announced that during that ad, they're going to be doing a free mint. Now, it's not an unlimited free mint where anyone who uses the QR, QR code will be able to mint. There is a limit to about tens of thousands of NFTs. Yeah, David, what well, what do you think about this marketing strategy? Uh, well, there's some very smart people. I, I think everyone knows people behind Limit Breaker, uh, Gabe Layden, who who was behind uh, Machine Zone, that was famously amazing at monetization and creating uh, what that uh, mobile game that was top of the grossing charts for maybe three or four years in a row. So, wouldn't bet against that guy, that's for sure. And I think that he's also very good at marketing. I guess the two are pretty <laughs> closely linked. <laughs> and the reality is that when I first, he talks a lot about this concept of free to own NFTs. And that sounds great. And you go, well, that does sound better than ones that you have to buy, I suppose. But then when you dig into the detail, as you say, Maria, there's only a finite supply that actually get uh, uh, given away for free, in which case it's a bit of a prize draw, a lottery or something, I guess. So, uh, I, I can't wait to see, uh, what, how all that works and exactly, you know, to, to me, it's sort of taking it up a level. So that's interesting in and of itself. There's a little bit of hype there behind it, but equally very smart company, smart people, a friend of mine, Ryan Fu, who's excellent at this stuff, recently joined that company. So I'm sure there's going to be, uh, I'm really, I'm sort of, there's a little bit of hype there that I want to see through, but equally really fascinated and and nice to see that level of exposure, uh, I suppose, that level of marketing. Yeah, what's what's interesting to me is that for any other team to, like if any other team would announce like a marketing strategy like this, I would be incredibly nervous about, you know, just being all FOMO and, you know, some sort of, of 
ploy in in a way. Uh, but this is a team that has experience with very complex economies in in maintaining them for a really you know long time, and um, a team that has been pretty bold on you know with with machines on like their past experience and like very bold ad strategy as well, where you know they've they've gone with like these bold campaigns, and it's interesting seeing that evolution. Right, there's you know attaching a Freeman around the ad having like a QR code, having kind of like a limited supply, like that is, that's super smart to me because one of the big things that's hard to measure is impact of like these, like big marketing ads, especially like in during the Super Bowl, like what the actual impact ends up being. I'd be interested to know, right? So I, I don't know if this is true for this drop, but I heard that like 10,000 were free. And obviously you would hope for more than 10,000 impressions if you're running a Super Bowl ad. So the, what the majority of people will see is not the free mint. So the question is, what do they see? So do they see a mint that you, sorry, is there something you can pay for? Is there an NFT you get to buy? And if so, what price is that? And what sort of conversion do they see? And almost like the free to own part, hey, QR code here and you get a free NFT is is not the real story. The real story is the people that go there and that you're not one of the lucky 10,000. Uh, and very smart marketing guy. So, uh, and, and sort of linking back to what I said earlier about I, I want to see the Web3 game space evolve and figure some stuff out. And they're doing something very different from us. But nonetheless, I, it, it's good to see these kind of experiments and smart people trying new ideas. Definitely. This made me think about whether we're just generally going to see marketing going back to its roots of traditional channels. At least when I first joined the industry, there was that shift about, well, not the games industry, my career, let's say. There was a shift from traditional marketing to digital marketing and the advertisement. But now, especially with mobile, due to the privacy changes and we see the, the difficulties there of the acquisition of users, whether we're actually going to see brand market marketing take a return. Yeah, I think it's I'm I'm of both minds, but I'm a little bit skeptical because we've inherently we're an industry that wants to measure everything and brand marketing is hard to measure. So I think they go hand in hand in in a way. Um but I don't think it's it's a complete shift. I think it it will you know if we can figure out ways to measure brand marketing. I think the game industry will figure it out and then disrupt uh, brand marketing in a much more uh, metrics driven way, even if it's not like precisely trying to measure like an ROI. But I, I do think that we end up leaning towards as an industry in, in general towards, you know, is it something that we can measure or not? Um, and if it isn't, you know, if you have the the cash to invest in brand marketing, some companies will do it, but it, it gets a little bit harder to access for a lot of uh, a good chunk of the industry. I've, I've got something to say. I, um, you know, TV is great for reach. I mean, uh, when I was building mobile free-to-play games and marketing those, then, you know, Facebook and Google are obviously great for reach, and but it was hard to find, and we were making casual games, so we just needed you know, tens of thousands of players in every day. And it's hard to find those channels that have that degree of reach. TV was one of them. So we we ran quite a few ads and uh, t TV ads just for, 
uh, a way of bringing people into the game just to, and it worked really well. Like we had CPIs under a dollar, uh, which, you know, for us was great. And uh, for most people, I assume is great. <laughs> the, 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 only, <laughs> the only issue is that uh, we would run a campaign. Those campaigns were expensive to run as well, but we were never able to predict what, when we were going to get sub-dollar CPIs and when they were over $4. Like it just fluctuated variously, uh, completely. And the, and the TV channels would often, you know, in order to get me to spend more money, would give a lot of science as to what we should expect to see in terms of installs and it never matched what actually happened. So it's just too chaotic for me. So as a TV, I think it's really interesting because it has huge reach, but the, at least we never got to a point where we could comfortably predict whether the spends we commit to is actually going to, uh, you know, turn into the results that it needs to, to make, to make sense. Have you run uh, TV ads, Maria? No, never. I've never run one. I'm quite okay. curious about them in general. If we look at the cost, of course, the Super Bowl ad has a very hefty price tag associated to it. I'm just generally curious if we're going to see mobile game studios branch out and finding more of these traditional channels. Yeah, because we yeah, are seeing yeah. that there's a pattern in the industry. So how will people respond? Maybe yeah. a web-free game? Maybe. <laughs> Okay, so actually talking about games in mobile that are struggling, Gwent announced that it's going to end further card development um, towards late 2023. So card development because it's a CCG. And I actually used to play Gwent because I played Witch The Witcher and I really enjoyed the game. And so I got into it. And this is how I know it has such a high quality in the game in terms of the soundtrack, the narrative, the feel of the cards, the animations when you're experiencing it. And so I was surprised to find out actually its audience is very niche. So looking at Data AI, I saw that it has a max of 170K DAU. And for, uh, yeah, <laughs> the live ops, um, in terms of the, the daily revenue, even when there's a live ops peak, it only really reaches 12K which is very, very low. Well, for well, hang on, oh, so that is, yeah. <laughs> enough, is it? This is niche. Uh, but like, I didn't know about it until you mentioned it to be honest. Tell, tell me what it is. It's a mini game within Witcher, but it sort of broke out to be its own game. Yeah, it was quite fun. It's, um, how do I explain it quickly? You build your decks, you have different factions. And so you can use, you select a faction that has a hero, the traditional CCG battles. Your hero can do something, a special power and you're placing cards. But it has some twists to it that I found extremely fun. But looking at the data, I'm not I'm not surprised that CD Projekt Red is going to stop further development. They're not going to sunset the game from the sounds of it. They're just going to stop the development of new cards, which is essentially saying that the meta is not going to evolve. And mm -hmm. really, with um, this kind of genre that really relies on new meta for card purchases, it is, in a way, a sunset for the game. And they, they have also slowed down the UA tab. So we're just seeing the downloads and the revenue start to, to decline. And so I don't think this is surprising. I think what's going to happen next is that CD Projekt Red is going to reassign uh, the team that's working on this mobile game to another mobile game. There was a recent success of Cyberpunk's Netflix anime, uh, the results of Gwent, the studio recently reinforced their mission to continue pursuing mobile. And so considering all of this, I think the conclusion is that there are greener fields of opportunity for them to, it's clearly a very talented and skillful team in terms of the quality of the game. 
so moving on to greener greener pastures is that the expression that works yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a it's a smart decision when you look at the at the data right it's it's high cost for developing that high quality and that high you know constant like live ops is just expensive um if you're trying to like hit that that quality bar that you're describing and you know just from the data like a, a 12, 10 12 cent arb dow for a ccd is it's pretty low um so it's not it's not um unexpected once once you look uh at, at the data as you were saying maria one thing that i found interesting about the announcement is that as part of this sunset non-sunset strategy they're actually investing time in developing tools in the actual Gwent client so that players can drive balance changes going forward. They didn't provide a whole lot of detail, but it's almost saying, hey, we're not going to add new cards, but you could potentially balance them and mod the game to keep it fun and interesting. Yes, Gwent is dead, long live Gwent, right? <laughs> that, should, that should be the marketing slogan. But I think this, you know, we're tying all of this back into um, the conversation about Web3 games, really. And when I read this, I thought, well, well, this is a value of building a blockchain game, isn't it? It's well, uh, building an on-chain game, one of the aspects of building an on-chain game is that that game lives on forever on a blockchain, or at least for as long as Ethereum runs on. So ordinarily, if you have a centralized game, then the game stops when it's turned off or sunsetted. Uh, but uh, yes, the one of the aspects that's interesting about a decentralized game running on a blockchain is the brains of that game can live on forever, immutably and uh, eternally. Like the game of chess, you know, chess is just lives forever, whether whether nobody can turn it off, right? Okay, and it's immutable. Okay, not running on a blockchain, but such a thing is possible. Oh, uh, something I forgot to, to mention, sorry, is that Gwent is actually available on Steam. And so this even further ties into the, um, into the modding capabilities. Mm -hmm. But when you say, sorry, when you say immutable, yes. that means you can change the game, right? No, immutable means you can't, right? So if you, you can, well, you could have it either ways. If you throw away the keys of a, a piece of blockchain functionality, then that lives on forever. Like if you've lost your keys, then that whatever's on the blockchain, whatever, however you left it is going to be there forever and you can't. So you could do that. You could build, uh, the rules of chess, put them on the blockchain, then throw away the keys. And then those, those rules are there and never change. But equally, you could, build functionality that connected with those chess rules. Oh, this feels like a whole topic for another podcast. Okay. <laughs> let's know, you know, let's, let's put it on pause there. <laughs> okay. On pause. Tammy, uh, we're talking a lot about mobile and the struggles with mobile. There's been a lot of interviews and some, um, reporting about how some studios have maybe a lost strategy by leaning too much into mobile and away from PC and console and other big giants thinking about leaning more into PC and console. So, so what Tammy's bringing today? Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's an interesting topic. Um, cause I feel like it's, it, it was, it's very fresh, but it's evergreen at the same time. Uh, cause Honestly, you know, why, why are we talking about this is that the, the main problem, you know, beyond building a fun game, like the main problem that we're always trying to solve on the game studio side 
it's a distribution problem. Like this is how publishers came to be, uh, you know, in the console days, you know, we see, we saw the rise of, um, you know, HTML platforms like .com, uh, you know, the Flash websites, that was all about, you know, distribution of games as well. And then, you know, mobile came about um, and everyone flooded there because you could find the audience. So it's, it, it feels like a blast from the past. It's um, actually, I, I did uh, give a GDC talk a few years ago, like it feels like 2018 or something like that, which talked about cross promo because I was trying to convince people like, hey, build your games as like, uh, not cross promo, sorry, um, cross platform games. Um, and I, I was like, oh, let me go and look at like, what, what were like, what was my opening there? And it was like three points of why you should be thinking about this. Paid UA is expensive. Today, more true than ever. Uh, platform features are hard to get. Today, more true than ever. And viral hits are rare. Today, more true than ever. That's very prescient on all those points, Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's, so it's, it's hard. So now we're seeing, you know, even some recent examples from teams really thinking about, hey, how, you know, let's actually bet on outside of uh, mobile. So we have, you know, Netflix recently um, talking about like their, the AAA uh, shooter studio where, you know, they have uh, X Overwatch and Blizzard, Blizzard leadership. Um, you know, you can totally see like what, what kind of direction they're going there. Supercell this last week, um, was very clear that there's there might be something there too uh nothing like official but um the the hiring that they've done for their two studios in north america are very much uh x riot and uh x valve leadership so you can also kind of get a sense of like the direction or like what they're thinking there um and even and, from can I jump into you. that? What's your, yeah. what's your point on that? That it's a, it's not a mobile play. It's probably like a cross-platform play. Right, um, I, see. I see. At least at least from you know the the leadership that they're bringing in, right? It's yep. not pure yep. mobile. Yeah. Um, yep. It's much more you know PC or and or cross-platform already. Um, yeah. Yep. Um, we're already seeing this movement from games going live studios uh, that are mobile hiring, non-mobile leadership, uh, and teams talking about like this, you know, cross-platform or all-platform, not necessarily cross-platform, but all-platform strategies. Um, so I think it is, it, it's something that uh, we'll probably see more studios uh, pursue this, but um you know, what, what do you guys think about just like in general, this strategy uh, for like solving distribution by going to all platforms? Like there's, there's challenges there um, that are, that are not easy to solve either. Like it kind of shifts, shifts the, the, the challenges. Yeah, I think uh, it's a really interesting topic. We've seen for the last 10 years that if you want to try and make an impact without having to hire 100 people, 
then uh, mobile is a good place because you can have a small team. You could probably get venture funding for a few million and he might uh, create a hit game. And uh, But now we've seen in the last year uh, that, that because of ATT or just mobile market in general, then it, that's not a winning strategy anymore. And And even if teams want to do it, they probably don't get funding to do that. So I, I've seen a lot of people that were building mobile, building Web3 mobile, um, because they feel like maybe, maybe that's what we can do that, that, that earns, uh, that works for us commercially. But I think what you're saying is you've seen people going from other directions and, and either moving to console or you're saying do both cross platform. Um, yeah, I think that there's, there's examples of, of, um, different pieces of this strategy, right? With, you know, it sounds like, for example, like Netflix is, you know, they have like their own mobile strategy um, and they're chasing this uh, kind of AAA studio that might be, you know, PC console first. Who knows? That's super early on. Mm. Um, Supercell is even earlier on, so can't, can't speak much to whatever they're doing there because the only thing that they've announced is who they're hiring and who's going to be running the, the studios. Um, and we have other teams like Gameloft where they are building for every platform. And I mean, even, even we saw it with Fortnite, right? Like they, their strategy was going on all platforms. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, often the, uh, the games that work on mobile don't work on PC and console, of course, different input, you know, different play patterns, different inputs. Uh, so I, when I've tried to do that in the past, I failed trying to make a move a PlayStation game over to iPhone back in the day, and that proved to be a losing strategy. But but maybe there's uh, maybe it's more nuanced than that. What do you think, Maria? Um, so when Supercell first announced that they were going to do a studio in North America, I believe they stopped very short of saying it was for PC and console. They said games you might not expect from Supercell. And saying we could make uh, PC, <laughs> PC, PC. They they did mention PC console games with hmm. the independent team approach that that they're taking. So I do I do believe that you're very correct that that is indeed their strategy. The things that come to my mind about whether a studio should take a cross platform approach is the cost. Exactly because you're saying it's not just doing a cross platform game. For example, the UI the input, the controller experience, you can probably be lean about it and not fully optimized for everything, but at least for the touch on mobile. And then, a, I don't know, a keyboard mouse for PC. Maybe you don't have to support console, sorry, controllers from the start for, for example, PC. But it, yeah, it has all of these added on costs. It's not as simple as just flicking a switch. And so it's, does the studio have the ability to take on the extra cost to pursue this opportunity. Yeah, I was thinking that in, in practice, I'm thinking about Supercell. I can imagine a Clash Royale first-person shooter game or, or something on PlayStation 5, but you wouldn't imagine. But it, it's basically a different game in the same universe rather than an adaptation. I mean, there are, Tammy, as you say, there are games like Fortnite and, and COD, of course, that work across all platforms and a similar sort of game experiences, but... Um, yeah. Generally, that doesn't work. I don't. If you look at, for example, the quality of Warzone, 
being able to take the needs that that game has into mobile, you can't do just a simple port. It has to be a different game that's being developed. And then additional to that is thinking, do you know how to acquire users on other platforms? Do you have that know-how internally? Do you have a partner? Because, for example, if you're a mobile-first studio and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go cross-platform, doing UA on mobile is a different skill set to doing UA on these other platforms. Yeah, no, and and it because it doesn't really solve the the distribution problem like in a straightforward way, right? It just shifts um, the types of skills that you might need. Uh, live ops being like a, a huge one, as you were saying, of maintaining the game. Uh, on the marketing strategy side, I think it's it, it is interesting because it feels like there's some pieces that are easier these days in PC and um, console than they were before. So you have platforms like Epic Games, um, Steam that very much approach it in a, you know, almost, you know, one-to-one to what you would expect from from mobile. Not quite, not the same way of like distributing the game in that way. Marketing is still like a whole different uh, beast. Like if you actually want to spend uh, user acquisition dollars for that, but at least on like getting the games, you know, in front of, of players, it's, it, it's a very similar flow to mobile. Uh, but you have, you know, other platforms that become a lot more, um, like a lot harder to navigate. Uh, even, even if Nintendo, for example, on the Switch, they've opened a lot to, you know, independent teams, um, and making it a lot more open platform in a way. It's still not, not the same as maintaining games on, on mobile and just, you know, releasing updates regularly and having kind of like this, tried and true DNA of live ops. Uh, I think like that's another big piece. It's like the, the, the way that you think about live servicing games that are not on mobile, it, it also changes. There's, there's a different cadence to how you need to think about your updates, your events, your content. Um, so it's, it's, I think it, it touches every point, like trying to do, games in different platforms it touches every point of game development from zero saying maria like marketing to user experience to how the team operates i've moved from console to mobile and it felt like a just completely different industry in terms of how you how you market the game how you publish the game how you build the game how you live operate the game uh what's important what's it's just so many things so i i think that a corporate strategy if it's let's say it's running supercell then i would say do you know we've got a massive ip here that the world knows about and we're just leaving money on the table by not having a clash of clans on on console and by clash of clans i don't mean the base builder game i just mean a clash of clans game on on console so to then build a studio which is a console or a pc studio but happens to be owned by supercell and happens to work on supercell ip that makes sense you're sort of joined right at the very top but i think expecting a studio to say i you know i know you're working on console last week but this week you're going to be working on mobile or or to the marketing team hey what i don't know i haven't marketed console games for a while but certainly when i moved i found that everything was so different so i think it makes sense at a corporate level i'm not sure it makes sense at a studio level yeah i think considering the costs you can you can hire in that knowledge 
And then there will be a storming phase because it's not just hiring the knowledge, it's going through the motions, going through the process. And probably the first couple tries or a few tries will might be a failure or not as good as expected as a team is is building up the coherence and the skills. If you're a small studio, you don't have the ability to just go out there, make all of the hires that you need to learn how to design, how to operate, release a cross-platform game. If you are a big studio and you have that war chest, or if you're building a studio that is trying to scale into that into that level, then cross-platform is where the consumer behavior is. And so for me, it is an expected move. For example, from Tencent, who has been pursuing that strategy of taking their um, expertise in mobile and knowing how to gr- create a great mobile game and distribute it and acquire users to other platforms. But we have not seen an example of a small studio taking this approach. No, and, and I remember um, uh, when mobile first came along and, and, and I knew tons of studios around the world that were great at making console games. I don't think there's any one, well, I actually know one, uh, but, but uh, that, that managed to make the transition from making console games to mobile. Uh, I, you know, they, anybody that tried, as far as I know, failed. I'm sure the people are listening to this and thinking of some examples, but uh, Half Brick is the one that I was thinking actually did a great job of that. But, um, but in general, it's such a different set of skills that the people that were making console games that then tried to make mobile games basically failed. Yeah. And I'm very interested that I'm here in this panel with yeah. two people who are working almost in niche these new markets that yes. are barely existent. So how, yeah, what is your personal take about you could aim for a cross-platform uh, and you decided, no, actually, this is the niche that we want to target and lead? Yeah, I can I can go first. Uh, and then l- let me just like add, add a little note before I jump into that. Um, I do think we've seen some indie game developers be able to be successful cross-platform, like the the example that comes to mind immediately is Stardew Valley. Um, but it comes from like a very different approach and very different mindset. Like there, it's a premium game, right? So it's, it, it's, I think there's also like a nuanced difference between distribution for premium games and distribution and expectations for free-to-play games. And I think like the big team uh, and, and, you know, needing like a lot of resources it, it probably is hype, like magnified when you're talking about free to play or triple A quality. Um, and that is why I think like some of the games where we've seen more of that success is like small, small teams, like small premium indie teams that, um, you know, can experiment in, in a lot of different ways and they find success by experimenting uh, in, in getting their games out, um, to different platforms. Um, but on, on the question about (laughs) kind of targeting niche, uh, markets, I mean, it, it's part of trying to solve that question for, in terms of distribution, right. Um, and for us specifically on, on Captain TV, we're thinking about it from the streamer side, the community side, um in reaching you know a lot more players by creating games and experiences that streamers want to play with their audience so you end up having like this one too many 
acquisition channel, uh, you know, influencer marketing is very hard because you're coming to an influencer and saying, Hey, play my game. I'll pay you money to play my game and tell your audience to play our, my game. But there's no like, um, stickiness there, right? Like, there's no retention really for, or, or incentive for the viewer or the, the influencer to really stick with the game. So it ends up being very expensive and very hard to like find, um, you know, audience that sticks there versus building the games in a way that, you know, they're meant for a streamer to be excited about playing with their community and their community to be playing with the streamer uh, and thinking about, you know, creating that tight loop between what the um, streamer is doing and what the viewer is doing, how they're progressing through a game is. So it's, it's creating the experience uh, so that they want to keep playing with each other as part of trying to solve kind of like that distribution problem, right? Like if I have a game that uh, a streamer wants to play and even on a small scale, they have, you know, a hundred, 500 uh, concurrent viewers, like think about like the, the number of eyeballs that you're already getting um, with the, with the game itself. The business strategy for the company is instead of approaching the known markets, you could go cross-platform. You could target that, but it's not a blue ocean. It's a very competitive place to operate. It's finding a market that's still in, in its nascency. It's a blue ocean that if you succeed, you could lead it and face less competition. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's It's being able, like, seeing if we can untap that that potential in the market where it's a, it's a gaming market it's a mar- gaming space um so there's an audience there for games uh so part of the question is you know what are the type of games that they'd be interested in in playing um and playing as a community so it kind of comes also with that that piece of community play um you know really rethinking social as well as as part of having that that retention instead of as you said you know let's build another mobile game or let's build a cross-platform game um i think there's there's a lot of ways to solve the the distribution problem for sure yeah i think my answer would that be that it's it's about timing if you can find something that you think has interesting new technology or interesting new idea and interesting new business model and then it is in that nascent stage. And if you can time it correctly uh, and you're correct in your thesis that this is an interesting technology or whatever, then you're, you're early and you become a genre-defining thing in that category. So it's really difficult to get the timing right because you don't – the danger is you're too early and the market's not there yet and therefore it's hard to make money. Too late and there's too much competition. But certainly getting to uh, – you know, you want to sort of time it where you're doing really cool things, genre-defining games, just at a time when people are interested in those things and you can sort of ride the wave and be the industry experts in, the, in, in a new category. Uh, but But I think it also connects up with funding, which is that – the reality is that even if you think uh, hey, I, uh, the best thing to do is to have an underwater sh- submarine game that's on console, I mean, it's not a category, but you know what I mean. Then you're you're probably even if you think that, and even if you're correct, you might you probably won't be able to get funding for it. So if you're doing 
project funding uh, or venture funding, then whatever you think is the uh, is you've got to be in line with what people want to give you money for, unless you can bootstrap it and pay for yourself. But ordinarily, you're going to have to figure out where to get funding for. Therefore, what you think is good timing and an interesting category needs to be in line with what investors think are as well. Yeah, and I think that the timing piece is is crucial, David. I, I really like how you framed it. Um, and we see that back to mobile, right? Like if you trace it back to mobile. Um, back in, in the early days, <laughs> quote unquote early days, uh, there were a lot of teams, you know, releasing games uh, from like different types of games. But the example that I'm thinking of is Zynga that had, you know, the, the farming, like had Farm Bill 2 franchise, Farm Bill 1. They had kind of like this, they were, they were the farming game on mm-hmm. Facebook. Yep. They actually tried a few different games on mobile um, and didn't really like, didn't really find the right audience at the time when they released. Fast forward, probably it was probably a year later, Supercell comes out with Heyday, which for all intents and purposes, it was just a farm bill game so just just a farm farming game on mobile and they found huge success uh in supercell you know became you know, one of the, the, the biggest uh mobile game developers with um clash of clans and heyday and the timing was just it was on their favor like they did really good quality games great games with very sound um, game designs, but for all intents and purposes, like the games themselves were not like these like revolutionary ideas, but they were on the right platform at the right time. Um, that's the yeah. bit that they got right, which is, was not the, well, it was the type of game, but as you say, it wasn't. Farming games had been around a while. It was the fact they were on mobile at the right time with the right game mechanics with the right choice of game and right monetization and probably figured out, actually it was pre-performance marketing, wasn't it back then? It was all about features, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that they, the bit that they got right was the, the platform and, and, and Zynga took a while to catch up and weren't there immediately with mobile. How do you grow to become a founder um, and then a CEO of an existing business? How do you grow to understand when to take the risk of the market timing and what what risk to take oh like there's a science to it there's no science to it you I just know. have to <laughs> you just have to go with your gut talk to a lot of people and uh, talk about things that test your thesis out on people your people that you know or investors that you know um and say you know do we think this is what do you think about this what do you think of the downfalls about building a uh, a, a game in this market and it could be the audience isn't there or you don't know how to reach them or uh, nobody's interested in playing those kind of games it could be all sorts of things and then you t- I suppose have to take a balanced view as to how useful and how valuable you think that those kind of things are going to be in the world but it's no there's no science to it really it's just a educated guess <laughs> I don't know <laughs> and, be- and being wrong many times yeah, that's right. You know, people only talk about successes anyway, don't they? So, uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, there's good ways of going about it and bad ways, but uh, but it's probably more art than science, I suppose. 
Oh, thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge today. I feel this episode was <laughs> a lot of knowledge sharing and it's quite refreshing. Always appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining. We're going to end the episode here. Uh, if you enjoy the episode, you can help us reach others by subscribing, leaving a comment. I try to answer all the comments on YouTube. So if you leave a comment, I'll get back to you. And you can sign up to the Navig Digest newsletter. You have all this content. So we'll see you next week. 